benefit of the doubt. After all, you shouldn't just worship the first person you meet who claims that they came from heaven. But Jesus knows the truth. He knows that the religious leaders are not practicing discernment. They're not just trying to do their due diligence on who Jesus is. As we saw in John chapter 5, verse 40, they refuse to come to Jesus. And in verse 44, instead of seeking the glory that comes from the only God, the religious leaders would rather have glory from one another. That's why Jesus says that they have never heard God, never seen God, never known God, and never loved God. They have no relationship with God. They are far away from God. Because as Jesus made clear, if you reject the Son, you reject God the Father as well. Now today, as we move to chapter 6, we shift in several different ways. We shift geographically, going from Jerusalem, then to Galilee, then to the middle of the Sea of Galilee, or the Sea of Tiberias. And finally end up in the synagogue in Capernaum. But we also shift from Jesus making claims about his authority to displaying his authority from God. And through all of this, as we've seen repeatedly in the Gospel of John, with almost every single passage we've read so far, the question remains, what must happen for someone to believe in Jesus? And who exactly is it that will believe in So open your Bibles to John chapter 6, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we go any further, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your Son. Thank you that we can gather here as fellow believers That we can gather here, uh, some of us strangers, some of us not knowing each other, um, and yet we have you in common. So, Father, be with us this morning as we sing these songs, as we hear from your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit and your word would be living and active to help us understand what it is you want us to understand. Help us learn what it is we need to learn. And I pray that we would respond rightly to what it is that your word says. Father, be with us in the week ahead. Watch over us. I pray that as we leave here this morning, later in the service, that we would be encouraged and challenged and that much more eager to honor you and serve you and proclaim your son, Jesus, to anybody who will listen. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we begin chapter 6, we encounter two separate events that seem somewhat unrelated. But they actually go together pretty well. The first is in verses 1 through 15. It's the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. That's pretty significant. It's the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. This large crowd has gathered to hear Jesus teach, mainly because they want to see him heal some people. But John specifically notes that this occurs at the time of the Passover. Now, the Passover, of course, was the feast that remembered how God used Moses to free his people from slavery in Egypt, way back in the book of Exodus. That'll be important here in a moment. But in the meantime, Jesus is concerned that the people gathered to hear him will go hungry. So he uses this opportunity to display his power and display his authority, especially 
to his disciples. They have nowhere near the amount of food needed to feed 5,000 men. And that's not even including the women and the children. And yet Jesus miraculously feeds this crowd with two small fish and five loaves of bread. And there's even enough for leftovers. Needless to say, the crowd is amazed and they proclaim Jesus to be the prophet, a second coming of Moses of sorts. Some people even attempt to take Jesus by force and make him king. But as we'll see more clearly in the rest of the book, Jesus isn't that kind of king. He's never lifted up on some glamorous throne of honor and glory during his earthly ministry. Instead, he's lifted up on a vile cross of shame and death. And then we see another story in verses 16 through 21. Another miracle of Jesus walking on the water. After the feeding is complete, Jesus goes up on a mountain by himself to spend time with God, kind of like Moses used to do. But meanwhile, the disciples set sail for Capernaum across the Sea of Galilee. And in the middle of the night, right smack in the middle of the sea, a storm hits. But then something even more frightening occurs. The disciples see a man walking on the water. And they're only relieved when they discover that that man is Jesus. Now, what do these two stories tell us? How do they tie together? How do they lead us into verses 22 through 71? Well, these two stories tell us, once again, that Jesus has the power and authority of God. Because only God can do things like this. I mean, the last time a miraculous feeding of that magnitude occurred... That was way back when God provided manna from heaven during the Exodus under Moses' leadership. And who in the world can command the sea like that? Only God. And the last time we saw something like that was during the Exodus under Moses' leadership when God parted the Red Sea, saving his people from Pharaoh's army. Now, is it just me or are we starting to see a theme here? I think we are. And that leads us into verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples... They themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. So how did Jesus get to Capernaum? The crowd seems to recognize that something strange must have happened the night before, and they're right. But instead of answering their question, Jesus criticizes them. He says the only reason they're following him is because they want more food. He then challenges them not to focus so much on physical bread that will eventually get stale and only keeps you alive for a little while. He tells them instead to focus on food that has eternal value. Now, what exactly does Jesus mean by that? How does one focus on eternal food? Where does this food come from? And maybe most importantly, what do we have to do to get it? But Jesus tells them exactly what it means to receive this bread. They must believe in him. The problem is that they're not quite ready to do that yet. They say they need a sign. Now think about that. Think about the terrible irony in their demand for a sign. These people are demanding that Jesus prove the legitimacy of his words through some kind of miraculous work. Same people who just got fed by Jesus. The same 5,000 people, handful that came over across the sea, just saw Jesus feed a massive crowd of people with two fish and five loaves of bread. And yet they need a sign? What are you talking about you need a sign? These people, like so many others that Jesus has met in the Gospel of John, they just don't get it. They can't recognize the thing that God is doing right in front of their very eyes. So instead of understanding what Jesus is saying, they think he's making some kind of reference back to the Exodus, Moses. They start talking about manna from heaven, how God and his grace provided food for his people as they were wandering in the wilderness. But Jesus stops them and says, okay, hold on a minute. We're not talking about the same kind of bread. Yes, the bread that I'm talking about comes down from God, too. But when I say bread, I'm not talking about manna. I'm talking about me. Now, this sounds awfully similar to some of Jesus's other words we've read in the Gospel of John. If you remember, Jesus told Nicodemus that he needed to be born again. But then he had to clarify what he meant. He told the Samaritan woman that she needed living water, but then he had to clarify what he meant. And here he tells the crowd that they need eternal bread sent down from heaven. And yet again, he has to clarify what he means. In all three stories, the hearer just doesn't quite understand what Jesus is saying. But Jesus, yet again, patiently explains. We see that in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus makes it crystal clear. I am the bread of life. I alone can give you eternal life. I alone can sustain you forever. I alone can meet that nagging hunger you have to be in the presence of God himself. And then he continues in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. It's almost as if Jesus is looking at these religious leaders. Looking at these people who were just fed the night before. He's looking at them and saying that, you know, your ancestors in the Old Testament who ate the manna in the wilderness, that was a wonderful, gracious act of God. And you're right to remember it and you're right to celebrate it. But guess what? Your ancestors still died. Because that bread, it couldn't give them eternal life. It could sustain them temporarily. But it couldn't sustain them forever. But I can give you eternal life. I can sustain you forever. Because I am giving my life for the life of the world. And yet, even after this explanation, those who hear Jesus just don't understand. By now, the religious leaders have tuned in to Jesus' teachings. Again, remember, they're at the synagogue in Capernaum. And they begin to grumble. Just like the Israelites did in the wilderness when they were hungry. Just like they did when they got tired of eating the food that God provided for them. And the religious leaders go back to the same old questions they've asked time and time again so far. Questions about Jesus' identity. How can God, how can this guy possibly call God his father? We know that Joseph is his real dad. We met him. Well, not exactly. And the religious leaders are also confused. I mean, is he actually saying he wants us to eat his body? I mean, that just sounds weird. And then what about the religious leaders who are vegetarians? Well, like Nicodemus and like the Samaritan woman, they just don't understand. Jesus isn't talking about crawling back into your mother's womb. He's not talking about some secret well with a magical bucket and special water. He's not talking about cannibalism. He's talking about sacrificing himself. He's talking about giving his life for the life of the world. He's talking about becoming the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, giving them deliverance 
Kind of like the Passover lamb during the Exodus, when people would paint the blood of the spotless lamb on their doorposts and God would deliver them. It seems like Jesus is doing something similar. But why is it that no one who hears Jesus speak, no one who hears Jesus say these things in the Gospel of John, seems to understand what he's saying? Why will so many of these people not believe? Why do so many people reject Jesus so consistently? The only people in this Gospel so far who have really responded positively to Jesus are the disciples and that town full of Samaritans. And particularly with the religious leaders, how long will the people who claim to know God the best just not get it? Now, you might even have someone in your life that you ask this question about. Why won't they believe? Why don't they understand? Why do they continue to reject Jesus? Why do they continue to refuse Jesus? Why won't they just give in? Many of us have those questions. But Jesus does give us a little bit of a hint in this chapter, a little bit of an answer to that question, even though it might not be the answer that we necessarily want. John chapter 6, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, It's not just the religious leaders grumbling. It's not just the people who came from the other side of the sea. Even the disciples are grumbling about what Jesus just said. Jesus said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Hint, they will. Verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with them. These are Hard sayings indeed. Who can listen to them? Who can understand? Who will obey? Well, only someone with God's help. Only someone born again. Only someone given living water. Only someone, as Jesus says in verse 44, who is drawn by God. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us new ears to hear, new minds to understand. New hearts to obey. And God alone can pour out his Holy Spirit. Now, this sometimes leads people to ask the question, well, does that mean that God chooses us or do we choose God? And an answer, in a way, the answer is yes, as weird as it sounds. On the one hand, only those drawn by God will respond positively to Jesus. We need help to do that. But on the other hand, we are held responsible for whether or not we believe in Jesus, whether or not we choose Jesus. 
But where does that leave the disciples? Were they chosen by Jesus or did they choose him? Look at verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. As we talked about way back in chapter 1, the good news is that while many people will reject Jesus in the Gospel of John, not everyone will reject Jesus. Eleven of the twelve disciples ultimately respond positively to Jesus. The only exception? Well, that was no accident. Jesus knows who believes and who doesn't. Jesus knows who will betray him. Jesus is in complete control of his life and in complete control of giving up his life. You know, there are people in this room right now who may not have responded to Jesus. There could be people in this room right now who we have wondered for days or weeks or months or years, why won't they respond? Why won't they understand? Why won't they believe? But the good news is that the same way that God saved 11 of those 12 disciples, God is still saving people right now. God is still saving people, maybe even in this room. But it doesn't change the fact that not all is well amongst the disciples. Jesus had hinted at his death already, but now we see that betrayal is lurking around the corner. And Jesus isn't blind to this. He knows that this is exactly what he came for. He knows that it is the will of the Father that he should give up his flesh for the life of the world. Now you put that all together, and what exactly do we take from John chapter 6? Well, a few suggestions. Number one, we learn that Jesus is the leader of a far better exodus. He does not walk through a parted sea. He walks on top of it. He is better bred than the manna in the wilderness because he gives eternal life, not just temporary life. And he doesn't free people from some physical captivity in Egypt. He frees sinners from something far worse. You may not have a physical ball and chain around your ankle. You may not have... You may have never been physically whipped by some cruel master, some cruel slave driver. But Paul says that apart from Jesus, you and me, every single person, Jew and Gentile, apart from Christ, we're all slaves to something. We're all slaves to sin. But thanks be to God that we have a better Moses. We have Christ who frees us not from unjust, temporary oppression, but he frees us from well-deserved, eternal punishment. And he doesn't do this by becoming some earthly king on a throne like all the other kings. He does this by dying like a criminal on a cross. 
So thanks be to God that we have a better Moses who frees us from our slavery, frees us from our captivity, frees us from the consequences of sin, and gives us eternal life. And another thing we learn is to focus on food of eternal value rather than food that's only temporary. Now, with all this talk of bread, you could come back and say, now, wait a minute, Jesus himself tells us in the Lord's Prayer to ask God for daily bread. There's nothing wrong with not wanting to go physically hungry. And you're right. There is nothing wrong with asking God to meet our urgent physical and material needs. But how often do we ask God, and how often do we thank God, Not for physical or material blessings, as wonderful as those things can be. But how often do we thank God for the things he's given us with eternal value? Things like Jesus the Son. Things like his Holy Spirit. Things like his inspired word. And things like his church. How often do we thank God for those things? Because those things have eternal value value. Another lesson we learn is to look forward to eternal life, as simple as it sounds. You know, wise people have said that if you give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. But if you teach a man to fish, he'll eat for a lifetime. Well, allow me to change that up a bit. If you give a man bread, he'll live for a day. But if you give a man Christ, he'll live forever. Jesus makes it clear that he will not lose those whom God has given to him. So we can rejoice in the fact that our eternal life is safe and sound. Our Savior doesn't fail to accomplish what God has given him to do. God does not lose those whom he loves. And those who come to Christ will never be cast out of eternal life by him. Because Christ didn't fail. Christ obeyed. Christ submitted. Christ did everything God gave him to do. Christ was the perfect Lord and the perfect Savior in his earthly ministry. And he will return. So we can have joy and assurance in our eternal life. And one more lesson. Be reminded of the source of your salvation. Verse 63 is... An incredibly important verse. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. That tells us that we deserve no credit for our salvation. We're not saved because we heard the gospel and we were smarter than those who didn't listen. We're not saved because we heard the gospel and we were just more humble than those who didn't listen. Our salvation, every single bit of it, is a work of God, and he deserves all the glory for it. Your salvation is all thanks to what God has done through Jesus Christ, our bread, our life, our deliverer. Now again, many people will reject Jesus, and that should trouble us, but it should also humble us. It should make us even more grateful that God and his grace would save people like us. That God and his grace would save sinners like you and sinners like me. 
So let's thank God for our deliverer, our better Moses, Christ. Let's focus on bread of eternal value, because that is the bread that brings joy, and that is the bread that brings eternal life. Let's remind ourselves that God deserves the glory for our salvation, not us. And let's look forward with confidence and with joy to the eternal life that Christ has given us. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you that you and your grace provide what your people need. In the Old Testament, you were patient, you were kind, you were loving towards sinful people who consistently rejected you, consistently abandoned you, consistently looked other ways and worshipped other things. You didn't give up on those people. You loved those people. And Father, you don't give up on us either. We too are often guilty of the same things. There are times that we read your word and it just seems to go in one ear and out the other. Like we never read it. Like we just don't get it. Like we don't understand. And yet you and your kindness and in your mercy, you love us. You continue to pour out your spirit on us. You remind us of who we are. Thank you that our salvation is not based on what we do. It's what based on what your son Jesus has done. Father, thank you that no matter what happens in the world around us, no matter how circumstances change, nothing can change the fact that your son was born, your son lived, your son died, he rose, he ascended, and he will return. And we look forward to that day. And Father, in the meantime, as we do look forward to that day, whether Christ returns or, or we die first, I pray that we would look to you for our daily bread. That we would look to you for the eternal food that we need. As we read earlier, we don't live by bread alone. But that we would live by your sustenance and your provision and your care for us. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your church. And thank you for the bread of life that you've given so richly for us. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. In light of today's passage, we're going to do something a little bit different when it comes to communion. With all this talk of bread, we've decided to offer you something a bit more substantial than the tiny pieces of bread that we normally have. We do have some of that bread available, if that's what you'd prefer. We do still have gluten-free bread, if you need gluten-free bread as well. If you would prefer the small pieces of bread that we normally use, or if you need gluten-free bread, come forward to this table front and center. We have two other tables throughout the room as well, one in each back corner. If you're sitting in the section over here, you'll go to that back corner for communion. If you're sitting in this section, you'll go to that back corner for communion. In addition, if you need help getting communion, if you'd rather stay seated, there are people who would be happy to help you get your juice and get your bread. They can bring those to you. So in just a moment, feel free to go to your respective table based on where you're sitting and take a piece of bread, take a cup of juice. And as you do that, consider the following passage. This is from John chapter 6, verse 52. 
The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. We're not saved by taking communion. It's a reminder of who saved us. Jesus himself saved us by offering his broken body and his shed blood on the cross. And the bread and the juice that we eat is a reminder of that. But every time we take communion, this is not just some normal, average meal. Because when we take communion, we announce to the world what we believe about Christ. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.26, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes when we take communion. So, as you go, take your connection card, take your offering as well, and give that to one of our elders. We'll have an elder standing at each table with an offering bag. Feel free to grab whatever bread you'd like, drink your juice. We have trash cans by the tables for your empty cups. While we're taking communion, Mark and the worship team will lead us in some singing, and then you're welcome to return to your seats. I'm going to pray, and then once I'm done praying, you can then get up and go to your communion tables. Father, again, thank you for communion. Thank you that you don't just tell us what your Son has done for us, but you give us a practice to remind us of what your Son has done for us. We know that we need reminders. We need things that we can do with our bodies, with our senses. We need ways to be reminded of the cross. So, Father, as we take communion... I pray that it wouldn't just be rote or meaningless, something like that. I pray that this would be a meaningful meal for us as we consider and remember what your son did on the cross. Father, I also pray for our offering. Thank you for those people who are so generous to our church in the past and those people who will be generous today. We thank you for people who love this church and want to do good ministry in this community that builds up this community, but also brings you glory. So be with our offering. I pray that we would use it well in a way that pleases you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for your son. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.
we close out our service this morning, I want to read briefly from Isaiah 55. We actually read this passage a couple weeks ago in chapter 4 of the Gospel of John with the Samaritan woman. But this is Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. We gather here every single Sunday morning as people who have found rich food, and that rich food is Christ. Uh, It's been said before that Christians are just blind beggars leading other blind beggars to bread, and that's very true. And so this morning, if you have that hunger, if you feel like you are missing something, if you feel like something is just off, if you've been searching in lots of different areas of life, trying to find joy, trying to find peace, trying to find fulfillment, whatever it is that you're looking for, and that you just haven't quite found it yet, I would encourage you to turn to Christ, turn to the bread of eternal value. If you have questions about that, if you're not sure about what that means, if you have Anything you'd like to talk about, anything you'd like to pray about, our elders are here at this time of our service. They'll be standing at the sides of the room as we sing this last song, and we encourage you. Talk to those guys. Ask them those questions. Don't leave here hungry. Leave here knowing that you have found true bread that bears fruit to eternal life. And finally, as Joshua mentioned earlier in the service, uh, many of you may have seen in the bulletin, but my grandfather, who had been in the bulletin for quite some time, uh, probably almost three years, uh, he had been battling cancer, and he passed away yesterday morning. And um, it's been a rough weekend uh, for our family, uh, but I certainly appreciate all the prayers that you've offered over the past three years. Uh, It means a lot to us, and uh, we ask that you be praying for us this week uh, as well. We'll be heading to the funeral on Tuesday, uh, coming back on Friday. I do still plan to preach uh, on Sunday the 19th. That being said, the elders have not twisted my arm. I don't want you to think that the elders are, you know, holding a gun to my head, making me preach. Uh, I've said that I want to preach this coming Sunday. Uh, That could change. Um, Our elders have been very supportive and very encouraging of me to take that weekend off if I need to. Uh, But I plan to. So I would appreciate your prayers over the next few days as we celebrate the life of my grandfather, uh, do a lot of traveling, and as I prepare a sermon all in the middle of that. So uh, thank you for your prayers. Let's stand together uh, as we pray and close out our service, and we'll let you go on about your Sunday. Father, again, thank you for your son. Thank you for offering bread to hungry people, starving people. Thank you that you saw Adam and Eve before us fall into sin. You knew that we were helpless. You knew that we were destined for destruction and punishment, and rightfully so. And yet, you were not content to leave us that way. Thank you that you've provided true bread that can give us eternal life, that feeds us, that sustains us, in this life and in the next. Father, if there are people here this morning who are still hungry, I pray that they wouldn't leave here hungry, that they would come to your son, Jesus. And Father, as we go out of this world into the various places that you send us, 
I pray that we would be bearers of that bread, that we would be offering that bread to those around us who so desperately need us, need it. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your church. Thank you for your spirit. And thank you for your word. And thank you for this Sunday morning that we've had together. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.